as we get started today, I wanted to begin with a question. That question is this, what is the highlight of your day? When it comes to, you know, I would say your average weekday, like what is it that you look forward to most? Maybe it's that moment where you get outside before the sun gets up and go for a walk or a run. Maybe it's that, that first taste of coffee on your tongue when you wake up. Uh, maybe it's seeing a certain person or giving them a hug or a kiss. Maybe it's turning on SportsCenter and watching the top 10. Whatever your thing is, I think we all have something that we found that is that part of our day we look forward to. For my kids and our family, it's eating. They love eating. It starts with breakfast, and then we've set a time. They have to wait till they have a snack, and then it's lunch, and then it's another snack. They're almost like little hobbits. They just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. Then there's dinner, and then, of course, the question, can we have dessert with dinner? My kids just love to eat. And so I often pick them up from school, and so I'll be waiting in the lobby for them to come out from the after-school program they're in, and they'll walk out, and the very first thing they'll ask me is, Dad, what's for dinner? And, um, and, and after a while, when you've done this a few hundred times, it gets a little bit annoying. Your very first question is, what's for dinner? What's for dinner? I'm like, you've never missed a meal in your life, you know? Um, and so I have a little bit of a, a sarcasm streak. I'm not sure if you've ever got this from me before, but so, so there are some times, okay, there are many times um, where, where when they come out and they say, dad, what's for dinner? I will have a response. And my response goes something like this. I say, well, Shayla, thank you so much for caring about me. Thank you for your concern. I had a great day. I mean, it was just, I had lunch with a great friend. I was so productive. You know, I did get this kind of mean phone call that kind of put me down. I'm kind of feeling tired. Maybe I should go to bed early. But, but on the whole, it was just a fantastic day. Thank you for caring about me so much. To which she says, Dad! And she rolls her eyes. And, and it doesn't matter. My, my sons do this too. This is, just, this is just the regular experience. And I, I tell that story because I want to ask you, how do you talk with God? Because I've been thinking this week that a lot of times I talk to God like my kids talk to me at the end of the day of school where I come and it's immediately into, this is what I need from you. It's immediately, this is what I want. There are times where, where my prayer is far more a, a gripe list or um, a demand list than it is a dialogue, a conversation, a relationship. And so today, as, as we begin this message, this is the big idea that we're going to unpack this morning. That the way we pray reveals what kind of relationship we want with God. Because I think we can say all we want, like, this is how I want to relate to God. This is the kind of relationship I want to have with him. This is what I want my life with God to look like. But we all know that there is some gap, either it's this big or it's this big, between what we say we want and what actually happens. And, and, and I just love, I love people watching. I grew up in Las Vegas, which is the best people watching city in the whole wide world. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And so I have been people watching for my whole life. And, and as I people watch, often I will listen to people's conversations. I just can't help but eavesdrop. Um, some people make it easy. They talk on speakerphone in public. 
which is like the most frustrating thing in the world. Um, Jesus, give you patience, you know. But, but when I hear those conversations, I pick up on relationships. You can see what a relationship is like by listening to how people communicate with one another. Sometimes you can only hear one side of the conversation. Sometimes you can hear both. But, but you see the kind of relationships playing out there. And, and that happens with us too. The way we pray, the way we talk to God or don't talk to God, it reveals the kind of relationship we want with him. And when Jesus taught about prayer, this is what he dove into. And so if you have your Bible this morning, I, I want to invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 6. Because when Jesus taught about prayer, he, he helped us to begin to think about the kind of relationship that he wanted to have with us. And the way that our prayers to him reveal the kind of relationship we want to have with him. Uh, If you're familiar with the Bible, this is Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. It's in this section that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Um, It's about 20 minutes in length. So we would call it a sermonette in our world. Uh, But it was Jesus' longest teaching that we have kind of uninterrupted. And it happens in, in what this site is called the Mount of Beatitudes, and so they were likely sitting on a hill. It was not seats like this, it was not streamed online. Jesus didn't have props or slides, you know. It was Jesus just speaking in an open-air setting. But, but in the middle of this teaching, the heading in my Bible says how to pray. And Jesus teaches them about prayer. That's why today's message is titled, How Do We Pray? So I'd encourage you to stand this morning as we read God's Word together. If you don't have a Bible... Jacob will make sure that you can follow along on the screen. Beginning in verse 5, this is what Jesus said. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. Therefore, you should pray like this, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your heaven, your father will not forgive your offenses. Jesus, I pray that, that we would be open, that we would listen today. I pray that today wouldn't just be a, a monologue towards you, but a dialogue with you. And even as I'm speaking the words that you've put on my heart to speak, I pray that myself and everyone here and everyone watching would be listening for what you want to say to us today. Give us ears to hear. Let us hear. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So just really simply, what we're going to try to do today is dive into how does Jesus teach his disciples to approach prayer? Because prayer was part of the world that Jesus was in and stepping into. It wasn't like Jesus in Matthew 6 
introduces a word they didn't know. Like they all knew what prayer meant. They had seen it done. And so Jesus says, hey, you've been around prayer. If you grew up in a Jewish home, you've read about prayer in, the, in what we call the Old Testament. But I want to teach you how I want you as my disciples, as my followers to pray. So how does he do that? Well, the first thing he does is this. Jesus assumes they will be praying. You might go, Scott, that's kind of duh. Well, I think it's interesting as I read through this week that Jesus doesn't go, hey guys, you should pray. He presumes they're actually going to be praying. I don't know if you're a person who likes to write in your Bible, but I will just give you permission. The Bible isn't a library book that at the end of life, God is going to want you to return untouched, unbroken. There's somebody that apparently has the same... um, book taste as I do in the Prescott Library System. And so I've been getting their books and this person must be an editor because in the book, in a pencil, they correct all the typos in the books. <laughs> Misspellings, grammar, comma placement, it's hilarious. So if that's you, thank you so much that maybe we can get on the same page with some book recommendations later, but, but, but they're at least doing that there. And so I would just encourage you, mark up your Bible, engage with it. And so if you have a pen today, What I want you to do is there are three places in this passage where Jesus says, when you pray, the beginning of verse five, the beginning of verse six, and the beginning of verse seven. And so I would encourage you to just underline or circle in verse five, whenever you pray, verse six, when you pray, verse seven, when you pray, and then verse nine, you should pray. Just as a reminder that Jesus is assuming and expecting that if you're going to follow him, Prayer is a part of that. It's an essential ingredient in the recipe for a life that's growing in relationship and likeness with Jesus. And and I mentioned food earlier. There's, There's lots of recipes that if you remove one element, it's no longer that thing. Like, I I can't have dairy, so I will have cheese-free pizza. Let me tell you, pizza was not intended to be bread, sauce, and toppings. It's just not the same. You got to have the cheese, you know? Um, If you're going to have a hamburger, there's got to be a piece of meat there. Yeah, you could get by with a veggie patty, but there's got to be something. If it's just vegetables, it's not the same. And when it comes to our life with God— If we are not praying, what that means is that we're not actually in conversation with God. I mean, can you be a disciple of Jesus without praying? Because prayer is the vehicle through which we build intimacy with God. We said last week that intimacy is time. Intimacy is vulnerability. Intimacy is experience. And so if there's somebody you're trying to build a relationship with and you never spend time with them, you're never honest with them, and you have no common experience, that relationship is not going to grow. And the reason that Jesus assumes that we're going to be praying is that he assumes we're in relationship and we want to grow closer to him. And, and I will tell you, one of the things that this series is, has challenged me and revealed to me, I was having a conversation in my group this week about this, was that a lot of my work is public prayer. I mean, I pray every Sunday. Most times, like I'm praying every day with someone in a group or one-on-one or on the phone. And one of the things that has been a temptation for me, and I'll just kind of go first in sharing my struggles with prayer, is I do so much public praying that sometimes I can think that I'm good 
because of all the public praying that I'm doing. But most of my public praying is only half of the prayer equation. It's me talking to God. But prayer, not sure if you guys knew this, is also listening to God. And if I just pray publicly, all I do is talk. If I don't pray pray privately, I don't ever listen. And I, I was convicted this week as I read something from the late Tim Keller, who said, everything else is for show. Everything else somebody sees. Secret prayer is the only thing you just do for God, just for him, not for anybody else. You you come to church regularly, there may be some benefit to that. You you give money or you serve it for Prescott Month, there may be some side benefit to that. You, You show up in your small group and you encourage somebody else, benefit to that. Preach a sermon, go out in the lobby, people say, good job, benefit to that. When you pray silently, there is no attaboy, there is no side benefit, because nobody else knows. You're either doing it for God, or you're not doing it at all. And that's why this is so convicting. I I know for me, and and if you're feeling, Scott, I feel like condemned, because I've not been praying, I'm not sharing this to condemn you. I'm just showing this because I'm challenged by it, and I thought you might be challenged too, that Jesus assumes and expects that we would pray not because we get some benefit from it, but because we get to spend time with him. That's the first thing he teaches about prayer. The second one is that Jesus warns us about the wrong kinds of prayer. I don't know if you knew this, but there are wrong ways to pray. And Jesus tackles two of them right here. The first one he tackles in verse 5, and it's praying to be seen by people. This is what he says in verse 5. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. When you pray to be seen by people, you get your reward, and it's not from God. It's from people. And he, he calls these people, he doesn't give them a title, he, just, he describes them by what they are, hypocrites, who, who do one thing and speak another, who project a, a vision of themselves to the world that is not who they really are. And he says, don't pray like them, Because your goal is not to be seen by people. Your goal is to be seen by me. And and so the the question we have to ask ourselves, if we don't want to end up here, is, is your audience in prayer many people or one people? One people, one person. I mentioned last week that, that one of the big things I've experienced as a pastor is that there's a lot of apprehension or insecurity around public prayer for people. You know, if you're in a small group and it comes time for prayer, everybody's like, don't call on me. And people will say, I just don't feel comfortable praying in front of people. And I get that. Um, I mean, Jerry Seinfeld has that famous line that the, the greatest fear of people is speaking in public, you know, that you'd rather be at the funeral and be in the casket than be the one delivering the eulogy. It's funny because it's true. Um, but, but when, you're, when you're praying in public, even if you do pray in public, you're not praying in front of an audience of all those people. Because if you are, you're praying to be seen by people. If you're praying 
to be heard by God and he's your audience, then you may have people there, but they're not your audience. Does that make sense? And it's, it, it seems like it's a, a minor thing, but it's actually a huge thing because it comes to intent. It comes to purpose. The second warning he gives us is he says, don't pray long, manipulative prayers. Don't pray long, manipulative prayers. In verse 7, he says, when you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles. That's the Bible word for people who aren't Jews. Often they worshiped other gods, idols, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. See, see, so often we tend to think that people who are great at prayer are people who pray long prayers, flowery prayers, big words. But, but often, we saw this last week, if you were here for that message, that, that you don't have to pray a long prayer to have a genuine prayer. Sometimes the, the longer the prayer goes, the less genuine it gets. And, and the question to ask here is, are your prayers authentic or are they agenda-driven? Sometimes the, the most authentic prayers are just what I told a friend this week are like bottle rocket prayers. You just send them up real quick. God, help. God, I'm sorry. God, thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Often the prayers that become long and, and manipulative are the ones that have agendas, you know, where you're basically demanding things of God. The word in, in my Bible is babble in verse 7. Maybe different in your Bible, but the, the original tri- uh, word in Greek means give me this, give me that. I have to have this. The, the commentators I read said it's like a word picture, and the word picture is of a child in a toy store. <laughs> Walking down the aisle with all the things they want. I need this, I need that, give me this, give me that. I have to have this, I have to have that. And it says, as if Jesus is saying, hey, when you babble, you reveal the state of your heart. You reveal your entitlement. You reveal your demanding nature. You reveal that you're coming to God to get something from him. And let's be honest. We have all been, at some point in our life, those kind of people who call and reach out to people only when we need something. At some point, we've all been that person. Now, none of us really want to be that person, but sometimes I'll open my phone to text somebody and I go, man, the last time I talked to them, I needed something too. And, and Jesus is not uh, a vending machine. He's not a genie. He's not someone we go to to just get something from. He wants to have a relationship with us. And that's why Jesus is saying, don't, don't fall into the trap of giving these long prayers in public to be seen by people so they think that you're something you're not when you're a hypocrite. And don't give these long manipulative prayers where you're trying to demand something and get something from me as if you want a transaction. And some of you might be saying, so Scott, it seems like Jesus is against public prayer. Is he saying we shouldn't pray in public? And I think it's an important question because Jesus says a lot about the value of private prayer here. But, but you have to remember that when you read Scripture, you need to read Scripture in the context of Scripture. 
So you go to the Old Testament in, in the book of 1 Samuel, and you have Hannah in the temple praying publicly, God, open my womb so I can have a son. In Daniel, you have Daniel praying publicly as an act of courageous obedience in the face of laws against it. He takes a stand, and it almost costs him his life. Then in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy, you see Paul saying, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So you see from the Old to the New Testament, you have this pattern where public prayer is called for and honored, and it's an act of obedience. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying is that the problem isn't the public nature of your prayers, it's the purpose behind your prayers. The the problem is not that you have people around when you pray, the problem is the purpose and desires of your heart come out in that setting and they betray you. And that's why I, I just think sometimes we should be careful to think about what we're saying. If you grew up in this world that's called evangelicalism, So basically, I would say if you went to a church where a pastor didn't wear a robe, you weren't handed an order of worship when you walked in, and uh, and things were a little bit more free-flowing, you probably experienced an environment where people did not read written prayers. And and the value of that is, is supposed to be authenticity and genuineness. And in some ways, it's a reaction against the formulaic liturgy of other traditions, where people read prayers and sometimes those can become rote. The danger sometimes is that we don't think enough about our words when we pray. And sometimes we don't realize what it is that we're saying until it's already out of our mouths and we go, oh, I I should think about that before I say that the next time. See, if your heart betrays you in public, then what Jesus is saying, only pray in private where you face fewer temptations. So, so he isn't saying that there is no temptations when you pray in private. But he's saying, hey, if you, if you struggle to pray in public because the purposes of your heart are revealed and they don't honor God, then start praying in private and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And he says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so I just want to encourage you that today might be a day to go, hey, I need to think about whether I'm going to be praying in public or private for this season right now. Well, God does work in my heart. I mean, it might be uncomfortable, but if the next time you're in your small group and it comes time for you to pray and you go, hey, I really can't pray. I'm, I'm really struggling with, you know, my ego and getting public praise from people. And so I'm not going to pray because I can't do it in front of you guys without. I mean, that, that would be a really big confession to make. But I'd have so much respect for you when you were done talking. We, we think that when we're vulnerable, people will think less of us. But what happens when other people are vulnerable? We admire them. So I just would encourage you, maybe this is a chance for you to take a, a courageous step. Because the way we pray reveals what kind of relationship we want with God. Now, third thing Jesus talks about. Jesus teaches a radically different approach to prayer. Jesus' approach to prayer, it wouldn't have been like anything the disciples would have heard up to this point. And and this prayer that Jesus teaches here is often known as the Lord's Prayer. And and I think it's um, mistitled. 
It isn't the prayer that Jesus prays. It's the prayer that he teaches us to pray. So a better title would be the disciples' prayer. And, and all too often, this um, prayer ends up becoming a formula, um, like math. Some of you love math. That's good for you. But, but prayer is less about technique, and it's more about relationship. Now, sometimes you need, to, you need to think about what's in your prayer, and that may mean you need to think about technique, but ultimately God's desire is to move us into praying relationally, and we see this. The first part of Jesus' different approach to prayer is that he invites his disciples to pray with three things, with intimacy, with reverence, and with dependence towards God. Instead of starting with, God, this is what I need from you, this prayer starts with relationship. If you have your Bibles open in verse 9, you see this. Jesus begins with our Father in heaven. We covered this last week. It begins with intimacy. It begins with relationship. Now, that isn't to say that you should never pray Lord or God or something more formal. But, but Jesus is reminding us that we're praying to someone who's not distant from us, but wants to be connected in relationship to us. The word father, father is the word Abba. It's, it's, a, it's a common, not casual, but like a child who uses the father, daddy. Father, it's, it's relational. And, and I know some of you have a hard time with God as father, because when you use the word father, immediately somebody comes to mind that in your mind looks nothing like God. And whenever I've taught on Father or I've been in a teaching where somebody's talking about God as Father, you can feel the tension in the room because so many people have issues with their earthly father. And this isn't a, ser- a sermon on God as Father. I don't, I don't have the space for that today. But, but the best thing I could tell you if that is your struggle comes from Louis Giglio. And he says, God is not the reflection of your earthly father. He is the perfection of your earthly father. God is not like your dad. God is the one that your dad was supposed to be like. And so when you pray to God as father, you're you're praying to someone who was perfect in every way that your dad failed. And he wants to have a relationship with you. And part of healing from the hurt from your dad may be healing your relationship with God and developing intimacy with him. That's where the prayer starts. And some of you, maybe that needs to be your only prayer for a while. Father. Maybe you lean into that relationship for a while before you get to the, the needs. But he, he balances out in the prayer that, that relationship with reverence. In, in verse 10, he says, your name be honored as holy. If you grew up memorizing the King James version of the prayer, it was hallowed be your name. It's this idea that, yes, God is relational, but, but he's not your homeboy. It was a cool t-shirt. I may have owned it at one point. You know, Jesus is your homeboy. Um, but but, but he's, he's, he's different. He's perfect when you're not. He's holy when you're not. His name is always to be honored. So, yeah, th- there, there is to be a reverence to our prayers. Because we're not praying to somebody who's like us. Prayer reminds us that there is a God and we are not him. Our world would tell us that we're God. 
I mean, we are given so much independence in our radical individualism that many of us have assumed the power and place of God. But when you pray, you're reminded, I am not God. He continues in in verse 10. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the same prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden when he's preparing to go to the cross. And he said, Father, take this cup from me. Not my will, but yours be done. This is this radical dependence. This is again where I will just push you. Being an American in this area does not help you follow Jesus. It hurts you. Because we are formed and fashioned in our culture to be independent. But if you're going to follow Jesus and look like him, you're going to have to become dependent on him. Not my kingdom, God, your kingdom. Not my will, your will. Not my way, your way. Dependence. He goes on in the prayer to to outline some things that that are rejections. Jesus in this prayer calls us to reject independence, to reject righteousness, and to reject strength in ourselves. In this middle section, he, he, he leads us to reject independence in ourselves. And he does that with this phrase, give us today our daily bread. And for these Jews, they would have heard the word daily and been reminded of the exodus and the manna in the wilderness. The word for daily in Greek means sufficient for today. Just enough for today. And again, we're Americans. We buy our bread at Costco and we freeze it. So we're set for a month. This is not like that. They didn't have chest freezers. They didn't have Whirlpool refrigerators. They didn't have Costco. You went and, what you, got, and you got what you needed for that day. And Jesus says, I want you to depend on me for what you need today. And I'm only going to give you what you need today so that you come back tomorrow. Because if I give you something for tomorrow, you'll depend on the bread and not the bread giver. And all too often what God does is he makes sure that we're relying on the provider and not the provision. And he calls us to reject independence in ourselves. In verse 12, he calls us to forgive our debts. This is this reminder that we are not righteous in ourselves. Again, if you grew up in a church that was more liturgical, think Catholic, Anglican, Episcopalian, Methodist, Lutheran, then every Sunday you recited the confession. Now, some of you were like, yes, Scott, and it became so rote and routine that it became meaningless. I know, I went to a Lutheran high school. I'd sit in between my friends during chapel as they recited the confession, and I knew they didn't mean it. But here's the problem in the evangelical church. We've made confession into a thing we do once when we follow Jesus and we never do it again. Confession is not a one-time event for Jesus' followers. It's this practice. And when you confess and you mean it, what happens? It humbles you so that you're recognizing if I have righteousness, it's from Jesus. It's not from me. And then finally, Jesus' prayer calls us to reject strength in ourselves. It ends with, and don't bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's this reminder that we're vulnerable to be tempted, that we're vulnerable to to stumble. And and it says that that temptation is going to come from the evil one. 
James, the half-brother of Jesus, who became a follower of Jesus because Jesus rose from the dead. Honestly, it's the same, it's the same you know, measure you would do for your brother. If your brother said he was the Messiah, you wouldn't believe him. If he rose from the dead, then you probably believe him. And what does James say in his book? He says, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. That's what Jesus says here. Don't bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We are not strong enough in our own to resist the temptation. So Jesus, don't bring us into that temptation. And if you do, deliver us from the evil one because we don't have the strength on our own. This is the place where I'll just push you. We're all tempted in different ways. There's certain stuff you're vulnerable to that doesn't at all phase me. And there's stuff that gets me nine times out of 10 that you would never trip over. So don't judge somebody else for what their weakness is when it comes to temptation because you have weakness somewhere else. We all have weakness when it comes to temptation and we all need the strength that comes from our relationship with Jesus. The final piece of his approach to prayer that Jesus talks about is he talks about appreciation for and stewardship of God's gifts. You think, oh, gifts. Are we getting money? Are we getting mansions? Are we getting streets of gold? No. Forgiveness. Verse 14, Jesus says, For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you also. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. The math of the economy of God is the way that you actually understand forgiveness, the test for that, is that you give it. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 18 called the parable of the unmerciful servant. One person was forgiven a debt, millions of dollars. One person was given, forgiven a debt, hundreds of dollars. The one who was forgiven the debt of, of millions of went out and, and found the man who owed him hundreds and demanded the money. He didn't get it. He didn't get that he'd been forgiven and he was called to forgive. He'd been forgiven and he went out to get his. And in that, in that parable, we see that unforgiveness is rooted in self-righteousness. When you are refusing to forgive someone, it's showing that you are not recognizing the forgiveness that you have received yourself. You think you're better than that person. You deserve forgiveness, but they don't. And let me just be clear, because this is often is the confusion in the church. Forgiveness doesn't mean reconciliation. Forgiveness doesn't mean trust. Forgiveness takes me. Reconciliation takes we. Trust takes time. Three things. But if you take the gift that God gave you and you refuse to give it, it shows that you haven't received it. It shows that you're still standing in your self-righteousness. And Jesus' words are really strong here. If you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. We're called to appreciate forgiveness and we're called to steward it. To give it out and give it away the way that we've received it. And this is why, back to the big idea, the way we pray reveals what kind of relationship we want with God. 
As you go through that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, you see that Jesus is building a certain kind of relationship with us and inviting us into that. And he says, if you pray like this, it will lead to that. So that's why he calls us to that prayer, not so that we'll say those words, but so that we'll begin to build that kind of relationship. A couple next steps before we close today. First, I want to invite you to audit your prayers based upon Jesus' teaching and identify what's missing. You go, audit, Scott. Is this like tax time? Well, kind of. Just listen to your prayers a little bit. Pay attention and go, man, if this is how Jesus called me to pray, intimacy, reverence, dependence, no independence, no self-righteousness, strength, appreciation, stewardship, what's missing? And then number two, start adding those elements. Like a recipe, just add a little bit dash to that. Add a little extra to that. It's like garlic that you can always use more. You know, just put more in there. I always double the garlic when I cook. It's great. And remember last week, the practice was you need to have a place. You need to have a time. You need to have a method. And then I just would encourage you, number three, be patient with your prayer practice. Be patient. We live in a world that does not function like the world that Jesus lived in. Jesus' world was an agrarian society. People actually grew their own food or they knew who grew their food. They watched it grow. That world moved at a different pace than our world. If you're going to build a life with God and a prayer life with him, it is not going to move at the speed of this. It's going to move the speed of this. So be patient. By the end of this series, you will not have mastered prayer. By the end of this week, you will not have mastered the Lord's prayer. I don't expect that. God doesn't expect that. So be patient with yourself as you go through that process. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for for modeling for us and inviting us not just into a certain kind of prayer, but, but even more into a certain kind of relationship with you. We thank you that, that, that you made it possible for us to be in relationship with the God who created everything we see. We thank you that you love us that much, that you want to be in relationship with us. And so we pray that that we would be attentive to our words. We pray that that the things that are in our hearts would be motivations and purposes that honor you. And then the places where they don't. And the places where, if we're honest, our relationships with you have been more about getting. We pray that you would convict us and humble us and that we would confess and repent of that. We do want to know you better. We do want to experience more of you and we want to be more like you. So help us to take a step into that this week. This morning, as we prepare to close, I just want to invite you, maybe with new appreciation, maybe with new understanding, maybe with new intention, to to pray these words that Jesus invited us to. I'm going to put them on the screen and I'm just going to ask us all together to read them. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one.